Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus Da Silva, and I am pleased to be joined today by returning guest from season one, episode nine, Dr. Melissa Hamilton. It's great to see you. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you for asking me back. It was so fun the first time, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. So the for the people who haven't heard uh, the first episode, um, Dr. Hamilton is one of, was one of my professors from university, and in the first podcast, we talked about quite a few different topics. We talked about her career in corrections as a correctional officer, her research in domestic violence, and we also got into some constitutional uh, constitutional law, uh, particularly with how police use force to apprehend uh, criminals um, or suspects, I guess is the, the right term for that. <laughs> um, so I think for today, we're probably going to, for the time that we have, I think we're going to focus pretty much on, on domestic violence uh, topics. And I have a few papers that uh, Dr. Hamilton sent me. And so I've been reading through those. And, and right before we were, right before we started recording, I was saying to her that there's one paper, it's quite interesting from an evidentiary perspective. And I was reading it and a lot of it was just like over my head. I was like, oh geez, I haven't come across this stuff. So it'll be good to, uh, good to go through it in a little more detail and uh, it'll be quite fun. So anyways, like we do, like we do. Um, so I, I think right off the bat, I, I just want to do a quick little introduction uh, this is just a, a little paragraph from one of the textbooks, and it just kind of gives a, a overview of some of the things that come up in uh, the term domestic violence and, and what that really means. So uh, jumping right in here. So in the UK in the 1970s, the phrase battered wife was popularly referred to, but over time with insight from the feminist movement, this term has fallen out of currency. Battering referred only to one form of violence, physical, and did not encompass sexual or psychological. Today, battering is a term used in the United States. Here in the UK, domestic violence is used, primarily for the pragmatic reason that it is understood in the public domain. Despite the, wide, despite the widespread use of the term domestic violence, it, it has always been criticized and there are still a variety of terms uh, currently in use. And some of these terms include domestic violence, domestic abuse, intimate partner violence, family violence, forced marriage, honor-based violence, gender violence, and coercive control. So just kind of just a general overview. And I think the last time we also talked quite extensively on uh, coercive control, which when I was a student, I think that statute was it was only like a couple years old or one year old, like it was, it was quite a new thing. So maybe we'll, we'll start from there and we'll just do a, a little overview of that. And then we'll kind of move into today. So coercive control, what is that? <laughs> so what you're referring to is that the, uh, the UK um, is at the forefront. Um, they passed a bill at the end of 2015 um, where they made coercive control a criminal offense. Um, only one other country had done anything like it, which is Tasmania um, in Australia. Uh, so coercive control is a relatively recent conception of a type of domestic abuse. Um, and you're right there. So what you had mentioned was that um, traditionally uh, it had been focused on physical violence. 
And a more recent realization is that it often is not just a physical violence, but it's a, a non-physical abuse is harmful as well. So what we're talking about is, for example, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, economic abuse, animal abuse, for example, um, harming or threatening the, the, um, their pet animals, which ca can cause um, fear as well as stress in the other partner. Um, and so the idea was that a lot of times that, but there's no one size fits all. So what in any abusive relationship, some of the, some one or more of those types of abuse can occur. But there was a, a realization that for a, um, one form of this in a great number of couples was that it was physical abuse, but also these other types of abuse. And the other realization as well is um, in, there's lots of myths about domestic abuse. And one myth here I'm referring to is there's an assumption that the physical abuse is always worse. And in, for many of our victims, they will say, yes, the physical abuse was what was felt as most harmful to them. But what we what were also realizing once we kind of opened our ears to it is that for some of the victims, they would say, yes, the, the physical violence was really harmful and painful, but for them, they, uh, some of them, they would also say though that the psychological or economic abuse or emotional abuse was actually worse. It was felt worse to them for various reasons. So um, the conceptualization, this came from a academic called Evan Stark who worked with a lot of domestic abuse. And so that conceptualization is that it blows up the idea that domestic abuse is only about the physical. It blows up the idea that the perpetrator's intent is only about physical abuse. It is conceptualizes as a much broader thing is that yes, um, if the perpetrator uses uh, physical violence as well as the other types of abuse, it is likely for the purpose of having control over the other. So the coercive control then is looks at it at not just simply discrete acts, for example, of one slap or one punch, but what is the broader picture of why is the perpetrator doing this more broadly in terms of this relationship? Um, and it's to obtain control over the victim. And then the coercion part of it is, for example, using some of these types of abuse to gain, to be coercive, to gain control or gain power. Uh, for example, an, ex um, an emotional type of emotional abuse we commonly see in these is putting down the other, belittling them, make them making them um, their self-esteem esteem suffer. And so those are some kinds of coercive actions in order to get that type of control. It's also looking at it, so I kind of mentioned, it's not just about discrete acts, but it also is looking at it from a temporal perspective more broadly. It's that this is part of, for those who are engaging in coercive control, because one thing I'd wanna be clear is, this does not suggest that every relationship where an act of physical violence or even an act of emotional abuse or psychological abuse means that coercive control is there. Uh, that's not the intent. The intent is simply to say at least one form of this is more, more broadly coercive control about the relationship and over time. So it just, it broadens it to a, for this type to more about the relationship and more about an ongoing attempt to gain control. So there was a lot of things I know I said in there. So um, what would you like to tease out? Uh, well, I think one of the things I also will say, I, 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 where I'm recording right now, there's a, it's, a, it's in the morning for me. So there's a bunch of 
this birds chirping and stuff. So hopefully the mic doesn't pick it up too much because I got the window open, but I'll just put that out there. Um, but yeah, one of the things that you mentioned uh, when it comes to, it's kind of like when you think about rape, uh, it's not a crime about sex. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It's about power, control, humiliation. So you, you have to, you look at a certain act and you have to kind of look at it more broadly. And once you do that, I, I feel like you get a much, it's much easier to understand. And the same with domestic violence where it's, there's that physical element. And of course that is bad because there's an inherent physical, like there's an immediate physical danger and that's always bad. That's not good. Um, but when you, when you think about the psychological and the emotional um, abuse that occurs, how that can be worse, that makes sense because you have to kind of look at it in that encompassing way. So I'm glad that you highlighted that. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure. I think it's just one of those things that ha having to understand that I think is such a hurdle. Um, and I think like in the, in the legal profession, it, it's come a long way. And, and so, you know, my experience with other law students, we kind of understand that because we're in the class, we have the lectures, like we get it, um, or at least we're trying to get it. Um, but for, for just kind of lay people, I think that's, um, it can be a bit tricky too. But I also think on the other hand, it, it's, it's getting there because I think the media is actually because I'm, I'm such, I'm so critical of, of the media, but, um, and, you know, in movies and, t you know, just in general, um, when I say media, I mean that very generally, but I think like one of that, one of those TV shows on, on Netflix, uh, I think it was called the you, I'm not sure. It was huge, huge, hugely popular. And it basically centered on, I didn't see it, but from what people told me, the, it was an abusive relationship and it, it, I don't think there was a whole lot of physical abuse. It was a lot of this coercive control stuff. Um, now don't quote me on that cause I didn't see the, the TV show, but um, you know, just generally speaking. So at least in that sense, I think it's better at, I don't want to say educating cause it's not formal education in that sense. You know, there's always those Hollywood isms in, in TV shows and movies, but it's great to see that at least the trend is going in that direction. Yes, and so the UK uh, reason that they it was so significant to make this a criminal law is to use the criminal law rather than just civil alternatives. And the reason that uh, coercive control partly resonates on that and the connection is to redefine the harm because the criminal law is often about um, making something an offense with potential criminal punishment because it's harming another person. And the, so to conceptualize the harm as being subject to coercive control is significant. And therefore um, that is a justification to use the criminal law, which is you know, a very heavy stick. It's understanding that the harms to the victims um, may be physical violence, but again, the social or so the emotional and psychologically and, and uh, economic abuse can be felt very harmful to the victim, as well as to their family members. So another uh, kind of blowing up the conception is that the person harmed may not simply be the direct victim. It could be the children in the relationships, other family members, friends may also somewhat be harmed um, and therefore justify the criminal punishment for that. 
And so one of the novel things, there's many novel things about the new course of control law, relatively new, it's now been in place for a few years, though was then to um, uh, give the victim, so it, it's conceptualizing the harm is greater, but also that it deserves a formal response, which is the weight of the criminal justice system. And so one of the after effects then is to recognize more victims as being harmed and then harmed in, in additional ways. It allows then um, another one of the benefits to the victims is they now feel, or some of them feel more understood that this is why my life seemed to be crumbling because it wasn't just um, felt by me the discrete physical acts, but this was harming me and my life. And the particular law is conceived of, and I don't want to get into too many details because it will get too heavy, but there one can, a perpetrator can violate that law without using any physical violence. So there is a, but however, the the counter to that is when there's not the physical violence involved is the prosecutor has to prove basically that there was a significant effect on the victim's life um, as a general matter. So that is a, a steep hurdle, but for some of the victims, they, they can show that, that their lives, their daily lives were substantially affected um, um, by the coercive control and the prolonged acts um, or repeated acts of the perpetrator. Uh, now, some other countries are considering uh, coercive control laws as well, and they have in the past. Um, and the, and it's actually not, even though one can conceptualize a lot of the benefits from some, there are some downsides to it that others have recognized. For example, some object to the fact that the use of the heavy criminal law for um, acts that don't result in physical violence may be too much is one argument. Um, but another is that um, uh, that they, um, some prosecutors, for example, thought that the coercive control law, unlike my, many of our criminal laws, is not defined very well. And what I mean by that is that rather uniquely for a criminal law is the legislature or parliament, sorry, decided that they did not want to define discreetly what coercive, coercive meant or what control meant or what the whole term coercive control meant. And their concerns, which were legit, legitimate, was that if they tried to define it discreetly, there'd be a lot of loopholes that they could that we can't really define every type of behavior that, um, in the end, is coercive or and or controlling. Um, but the contrary to that, then, is so they the particular law does not define it discreetly. Is that um, prosecutors and some you know legal professionals say argue that you should not have a criminal law that is not really clear in what behavior contravenes that law. And so I can see that as a legitimate argument as well. So that's kind of the, or at least one of the battles on this law is if you define it discreetly, there's a lot you're gonna miss of bad behavior. However, we're, we're used to in the criminal law is putting people on notice if you do this particular behavior, you could be subject to the heavy hammer of the criminal law. Yeah, that's very true because, because criminal law is interesting in, in that sense where it's quite important to be, to be very clear about what it is that is being criminalized uh, for a number of reasons. But the unique thing about domestic violence and when you look at individual cases 
it really is amazing how creative perpetrators are at hurting the victim. Like it's, it's like, in a in a terrible way, it's kind of amazing because the, their creativity is, is unlimited. And so if you, if you paint a box, you, you draw a box and say, okay, this stuff in here is bad and anything outside is whatever, it's fine. They'll find a way to get around it. I mean, it, it is quite a, it's, yeah, quite unique in that sense. And then also with domestic violence, the fact that it mostly happens behind closed doors. And so there's that inherent issue because it's like, well, you know, the things that happen, you don't see them. And, and so it becomes for, for a, um, trying to prove that, trying to prove it on, on evidence can be quite a hurdle because they're just, it's not there. Yes, uh, but I'm gonna um, take the opportunity there about that conception though is also uh, recognizing it from a physical violence perspective. So the physical violence most often happens behind closed doors, but the emotional and the psychological abuse is more likely or can happen in public. It's for example, seeing one partner berate the others in public, you see that more often. And so uh, unlike traditional domestic abuse laws that were about the physical is some of this coercive control is happening in public. It's happening when other people are around. And, it's, and the reason is because most people don't know that there is this law and, and therefore, and also don't understand about the significant harms these other types of abuse can have. And so they're witnessing a crime occur and most people will not know it. So for example, if they're witnessing the perpetrator you know, in public berating, um, undermining the other person's self-esteem, maybe calling them names, that actually could be potentially a cr criminal action happening in front of them and most people wouldn't recognize that and therefore they might very well not step in. Uh, but also consider the other thing though is um, one of the difficulties in the enforcement and understanding of this law is when we're in personal relationships, we sometimes for legitimate reasons or think they are use coercive controlling behavior because we think it's, we're, we're trying to get our partner to do, to not do something we think is harmful or to do something we think is beneficial to them. So it's things, so when does that become criminal is one of the issues as well. For example, if we think our partner is abusing drugs, we may use what are otherwise coercive and controlling behavior to convince them to not use those drugs because we think it's harmful. For example, it could be we might threaten them. If you if you take drugs tonight, you know, I'm I'm not going to, you know, be nice to you or have dinner with you or I'm gonna leave, that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of coercive and controlling to intimidate the other person to complying with your demands. Now, that being said is the, the, the UK's new law does build in a defense for that kind of behavior if it is a re, if you're using coercive control and otherwise it's deemed to be reasonable. But still it is a, you know, something just to consider about, it's not just that coercive control is always bad. It may not be in context. It may be a really good thing you're doing for your partner for whatever reason. Um, but just you know, something to consider and makes it um, interest, a little bit more difficult. Um, one of the examples of that too, just to think about is the parliament had to decide, it, should there be an age limit? Because they also recognize, will parents use coercive control against their children a lot because they're trying to discipline their children and um, 
ensure that they're on the right path. And so what the parliament then did there is to have an age limit so that parents weren't, weren't going to be guilty of a criminal offense because they were trying to um, raise their children and they might use threats of punishment um, in order to convince their potentially immature children to do um, correct things in their lives. So when we recorded last time, this was shockingly about a year and a half ago. So even though uh, your episode was the ninth episode, uh, that was the third episode I ever recorded. So it was quite fresh at that point. Um, but since then, so that was pre-pandemic. And obviously we're, I guess, technically we're, we're still in it, um, unfortunately. But um, so a question for you is, how has the pandemic affected rates of domestic violence or just, I'll just be very broad with just how has the pandemic affected it and with coercive control or even just more broadly, what, what effects have been observed? Uh, very good question. Uh, what we have is uh, most statistics indicate that uh, domestic abuse has risen in the pandemic. Um, and several, a number of reasons for that. For those perpetrators who, um, for who stress is a reason they act out in engaging coercive controlling behavior, including physical violence, well, the stress of the pandemic has increased um, their, their otherwise stress levels as well as their mental health and potentially undermined their inhibitions. Uh, we've also seen then that um, for victims themselves is because of the pandemic and quarantines is they may then be quarantined with their abuser without the ability to actually leave either in the moment or to um, end the relationship. Because by law, um, depending on what country, but you are precluded from leaving your home or going other places. So um, one of the reasons as well then is that shelters couldn't often couldn't take in new women because of quarantining. Uh, because of the risk of COVID versus the risk of, you know, versus the needs of individual victims. Um, we've also seen then more difficulty for first responders to be able to go to homes and to take care of things because of protecting first responders from the disease as well. Uh, so it's just been a, uh, you know, domestic abuse is a problem in its own, and then pandemic has just increased, um, you know, many aspects of it, which is we think that um, more abuse has happened as well as victims don't have the same ability to escape the abuse or be able to connect with services that might help them out and reduce the harms to them and give them opportunities to leave, uh, whether temporarily or permanently, um, and just stress levels and mental disorders are increased as well. So troubles that, and this has, you know, been, uh, we've seen this not in any one particular country, but it's happening around the world, unfortunately. Yeah, ha having listening, uh, listened to, to your answer that, it reminds me, um, uh, the, so for the intro to, to your episode, um, I recorded a, I think it was about 10 minutes or something like that. And I, I went through some statistics on the rates of, domestic violence and some some issues with that um, during the pandemic because so we recorded in March and then I uploaded it I think it was about four or five months later something like that so we were kind of in the in the pandemic um, so if anybody wants to listen to that there's uh, some statistics right at the start of that but 
where we are now, that's about a year ago. So, you know, still, um, you know, outdated by today's terms, um, because that's the thing. Uh, it changes so quickly and you have to, you have to constantly be refreshing and understanding what's happening. And, and also too, like when you think about the, from a coercive control perspective and, and just focusing on the psychological and emotional, um, when you think about when you are locked, when lockdowns went in and you literally couldn't leave your house, and then in some jurisdictions it eased a bit and then locked down again. And that must be, I mean, that must just be horrible because like you think you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, second wave, third wave, fourth wave, whatever, and it gets shut down again and then you're stuck you, you know, you're right back to where you were. So even from, from that side, I mean, geez, like that would be terrible because it's just a cycle. Yeah. So stress levels and anger um, have been, incre have increased during the pandemic. And then when you have these couples, they're together 24 seven, it's just, you can imagine the situation explodes. Now, I don't mean to suggest that um, stress is an excuse, although a lot of our perpetrators try to claim it as such. You know, I was just, it's stressed or, um, you know, they try to externalize it as, it as if it's some some other thing controlling it. You should, well, you should still control your own behavior. Um, but we do recognize that that could be a correlation as to why um, the incidence of domestic abuse um, are much greater during the pandemic and the pandemic is continuing. Um, so we'll only know at, when we can do surveys or however method of studying this, the extent of it after the pandemic, because even those um, institutions who are trying to study it during the pandemic is their traditional modes of doing research have been impeded because of the pandemic. So even the some of the statistics that are being um, offered to us is we don't really know how good the methodology was because uh, we, we still need to study was the way, for example, that you were a, you tried to count the number of incidents. So it's probably different than the way you counted before. So at some point, we're going to have to flesh out. Um, you know, are the, we are we comparing apples and oranges in, in terms of the exact numbers? Although um, all for all measures, in a variety of ways, if we triangulate, at least what we can confidently say is that the incidence of domestic abuse are up. We just don't really quite have a grasp on the percentage or the rate at which they are um, increased because of those methodological differences pre and post pandemic when we get there. Right. And, and I was watching uh, last week, I was watching a episode of Bill Maher's show and he, uh, he does a segment called New Rules. And then at the end, um, kind of has a bit of a monologue on a particular issue and it's, you know, whatever the issue may be. And one of the things was the rates of, in, in the United States, the rates of alcohol abuse, like just skyrocketing through the, uh, through the pandemic and um, have, especially with binge drinking as well. That's, that's something that's gone up and amongst young people as well, not just older people, but uh, like people my age. And so I was even thinking just from a, a physical violence perspective, uh, I'm sure that anytime you're abusing any type of substance uh, more frequently, I'm sure the rates of the physical side of, of abuse would probably be amplified a little bit too. Um, I, you know, I guess it's like correlation causation thing, um, you know, but I know something to consider. 
Yes, uh, on the uh, correlation causation. It's actually only correlated in countries where the country's value system believes that alcohol and drugs is connected to physical violence. What do I mean by that? Is that not all cultures believe there's an association between inebriation and physical violence. And those cultures, they don't connect the two and therefore the two do not coexist. So, so therefore what I expect we'll find is that in cultures where they have that connection, they believe that perpetrators are more likely to be violent once they use alcohol or drugs is the rates will be higher when they do those same perpetrators use alcohol and drugs. But very likely in those cultures that don't associate, we won't see that connection. So we might see an increase in domestic abuse, but not related to the binge drinking and, and what have you. Because it actually, there's not a causative effect between an intoxicant and physical violence. There can be an expected effect. And if so, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if your society expects there to be such a connection, well, they'll end up being a connection, not because it's causative, uh, but because of the social expectations of it. Um, the other aspect of that as well, I've, I've heard some perpetrators and uh, say those who are self-aware and being honest, is some of them use alcohol and drugs as an excuse to perpetrate. It's basically, they say to themselves, is, I'm, I want to release my anger and I'm used to doing it in a way which is to be physical with my partner, um, but I, I want to use alcohol and drugs as, as the excuse, so I'm going to drink a whole lot and therefore I can blame that when I then am become violent. Um, and that they also do it as a way of then the victim expects that because that's the could be the dynamic in that particular uh, partner uh, structure. Well said, that's very interesting. I'm gonna have to, I, I made a little note of that. I'm gonna have to listen back to that because it's very interesting. Um, well, another related one, if I can mention as well is it's not just about the effect on the perpetrator, it's uh, the victim's use of drugs and alcohol can make them more vulnerable. So I'm, I don't mean that in a victim blaming aspect, but what we some often see in domestic abuse as well as sexual assault is that a victim who is intoxicated then might be deemed to be a more vulnerable victim um, that then the perpetrator sa then says opportunistically then this is a more vulnerable victim. I can then perhaps get away with it and therefore that may take that as an opportunity to strike. Yeah, that, that's true. I know luckily in the tutorials that we had, because uh, you know victim, victim blaming is one of those things that pops up and you have to be mindful of, but like what you said, it, it's not about victim blaming. It's just simply stating the fact that you can become more vulnerable, in which case the, the chances of something bad happening can go up. So it's, it's just about looking at it more um, broadly and, and just at least addressing that, because if that's the case, then you can warn against that and hopefully prevent that from happening, getting it, you know, from going down that line. So it's important to, and definitely important to, to discuss in that sense. Um, do you have anything more on, on this topic before we switch slightly switch topics? <laughs> uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Perfect. So I want to go to uh, one of the articles that you sent me. So I got two of them here and I think we'll, we'll spend uh, most of the time on this first one. And the second one's interesting. It talks about, um, it's kind of a novel study, um, which we were talking about 
prior to uh, recording. Um, so it talks more about like the evidence side of it. So I do want to go through that. It's it's a bit, it's not law heavy. It's just there's a lot of law words in there. So we'll go through and we'll we'll pick them apart and and discuss them because I think it's even though it's a bit law heavy, I I still think it's very important for for people to know. So we'll break that down after. But I, I want to start with this one. It's just a little bit more of a general. Um, talks about a lot of general issues in, in domestic uh, in domestic violence, and uh, one of the topics that, particularly from a, a social construct, people have a very difficult time, and myself included, get, going into that class, have a difficult time understanding why an abused uh, why an abused victim would stay in the relationship. Why don't they just leave? So there's this agency issue that comes up quite frequently. Um, and so this, this article that you wrote addresses that. So the title of this article is, uh, is Judicial Discourses on Women's Agency and Violent Relationships. And this is cases from California. So um, I'll just read a little bit of the, of the synopsis here. Uh, I'll, just I'll just read this synopsis and, and we'll get into it. So it's kind of a fat paragraph, but we'll go through it. Adult female targets of domestic violence by male perpetrators have commonly been described as helpless and passive. This is consistent with the criminal justice system's perception that true victims have little culpability or agency in a violent assault. Otherwise, the victims are more likely to be defined as participants in the violent act and thus unworthy of official protection. This study examines court opinions involving convictions of male offenders of domestic violence against their female partners and ex-partners. The purpose is to understand the development of judicial knowledge as to whether women in relationships with violent men are socially constructed as worthy and legitimate victims of violence. The 60 plus appellate cases, uh, the 60 plus appellate case opinions in the analysis are those where a, California, where a California trial court accepted expert testimony on domestic violence in prosecuting the male offenders to explain the women's actions regarding their violent relationships. California was chosen because of the state's progressive and unique evidentiary statutes that permit a broad range of evidence in criminal prosecutions of domestic violence, including expert witnesses. In reviewing the judicial opinions that comprise the corpus, I found that an underlying assumption evident in the judicial discourses is that abused women would, should, or could easily exercise agency in ending an abusive relationship, and once it was ended, refuse to re-engage in their abusive relationships. Using critical discourse analysis, the study shows that in constructing women's agency in, re in resisting abusive relationships, Judicial discourse tended to rely more heavily upon expert testimony and in a few cases on prosecutorial arguments than on the testimony of the female victims themselves. In this process, the women's voices were silenced or marginalized as experts' constructions of victimized women were preferred. So it was, I know I said a lot in that one, um, <laughs> but it it's, lays out the, the foundation of this. So we'll, we'll go through um, we'll go through some of the, the topics um, in that study, but very quickly, I just want to ask you. So one of the things that comes up with, uh, well, leaving. So you want to leave an abusive relationship. So I, I know we talked about it in the, in the first podcast, but uh, I'll ask you again. So what is one of the most dangerous? Um, well, yeah, 
I, guess, I think you know where I'm going with the question. I'm trying to yeah. figure out how to frame it in a way to get you to answer it in a particular way. But um, leaving a relationship is generally where the the victim is more most likely to suffer um, serious physical harm. Is, is that fair to say? Right. So the, there are many reasons that it's not so easy as assumed for somebody to end a relationship, particularly a relationship that has been abusive. And one of the reasons is actually the intent may be strategic, and that is that statistics indicate that an, um, the attempt to end the relationship is the most, most lethal time for the victim, meaning that the likelihood that um, the victim will be killed is at its strongest by attempting to leave, because then that triggers the perpetrator, um, their anger, and um, their it threatens their ability to control. So again, we're back here to the relevance of the control aspect. So if the victim is going to leave, then the perpetrator understands I'm going to lose control. That's what I've been working on all this time. And therefore that escalates the perpetrator's anger and feeling that their property is about to be taken. And so they're more likely than to engage in lethal violence and kill their, um, the victim. And so if we, if you, you know, relook at it as why don't you simply leave? Well, maybe she wants to save her own life. Um, or the lives of her children, because sometimes the perpetrator kills the children as well. Um, and then even if they, and other impediments, uh, in fact, my um, colleague, Sarah Buell, has written, uh, read, wrote a couple articles where she outlined 100 reasons why it's not so simple to leave, and I won't go into 100 now. Um, but uh, so it's also troublesome because Recall if, at least to the extent it was, if the particular relationship was the form of the coercive control, is the perpetrator probably has done a, threatened the victim uh, about a number of things that will will happen um, if uh, the victim does try to leave. It's things like, um, just to give some examples, but these are very common, is threatening to take the custody of the children because often our perpetrators make more money or they control the money. And so then they threaten, well, I'll get the lawyer, you can't afford one and therefore I'll get custody of the children. Um, and so that's a, that's a significant threat to um, a parent to lose their children, particularly um, if they feel that or fear and legitimately fear that the perpetrator may then take, uh, be coercive, controlling and violent to the children. Um, and then it's things such as if they're controlling the finances, just more generally, uh, the victim may not have access to funds to be able to find their own house, find, and find safe and stable housing, which is important, or be able to relocate. Um, the, uh, so it's financial as well. Um, in addition is, even if the victim does successfully leave, does not mean the perpetrator ends their harassment. So they can engage, and we often see them engage in stalking and continued harassment of the victim. Uh, we've seen them, for example, show up at the victim's workplace and basically try to get the victim fired. Um, or they uh, continue to harass the victim's children, family members, other people. And so even successfully leaving may not be that successful if the perpetrator continues to harass and harm them. Uh, we now have in the more modern age, the use of technology to be able to continue to do that harassment um, uh, using technology in a variety of ways. Um, the, even the concept of revenge porn is part of something that the perpetrators may do, um, even if the victim gave, you know, vol voluntarily at the time uh, gave or allowed the perpetrator to take photos um, uh, of them uh, in a state of undress or otherwise 
uh, film, whether even without their with their permission or without their permission. Sometimes the perpetrators then will threaten or actually, you know, release those images. And that can be very harmful. And so some women fear, legitimately fear that because that can then be threatening to their own self-esteem, their own sense of privacy, their own um, safety for purposes of other people trying then to attack them. Uh, it can threaten their employment. Um, so just a few of the reasons why it's, it's just not simply so easy to leave. And actually that's then a literally a threat to their own life um, if they, when they do attempt to leave. Well, and, and that also reflects the, the physical, emotional, and psychological cycle of violence because leaving probably would eliminate the physical violence because you're not there. So you can't get hit, like you're just physically not there. But the emotional and the psychological, still there, you know? Well, I need to correct even the first one is the physical abuse does not end. Because what we are, in some cases, it does not end. So we've seen perpetrators then go seek out and physically find their um, their prior partner and kill them then or physically harm them. Uh, so yeah, even the physical abuse does not necessarily end. Um, this sometimes happens, particularly uh, just as an example, if the couple has children. Well, they may they may see each other at other events, and that become can become violent. Um, and so, kind of the or at least. Some systems then um, have have in place some uh, have made some attempts to try to modify that. For example, if they're changing custody of the children, doing it in a neutral platform so they don't have to meet. But even then, that's not a, a guarantee that physical abuse won't happen. Sometimes we have ex partners find their you know spouse or former spouses and kill them in other places. So even the physical is not necessarily um, does not necessarily end at that particular time. Good correction. <laughs> um, for people, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, David Goggins. I, I know we've talked about him on the podcast before. Um, won't get into it too much right now, but um, his book, Can't Hurt Me, uh, he describes his tyrant of a father who was tremendously abusive in every single way to David, his brother and his mother. And, and so just from like a case study, if, if anybody um, wants to get a better idea of what coercive control, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, children, uh, abusing your children as a means to um, abuse your, your wife. I mean, the, the, sadly, it's a perfect example of sort of everything that we've been talking about thus far. Um, so if, people are interested in that, that's a, that's a good case study to look at. Um, well, something else if I can throw in that we haven't yep. mentioned, um, because often people try to see this as, um, it, you know, in black and white where abuse occurs or doesn't occur, that what we haven't mentioned is the context and what makes it so difficult for domestic abuse is the love, that this was a person that the victim loved. And then you might, you know, a lot of people say, well, how can you love somebody who's abusing you? Well, you can because we can't always control who we love, and love often doesn't make any sense. That we, you know, love is an emotion, um, and we can't always control our emotions, no matter how hard we try. You know, just consider even outside of love, other emotions you've had that you you really don't want to have. For example, it's fear or envy, and you try to control yourself from having that, and you. We simply can't control all of our emotions. Some of us are better than others, 
But love is also emotion that we can't always um, control as well. And so a lot of our victims then what their thought process is, is they don't necessarily want to lose the relationship is that there was something in that other person probably at some point they saw, thought, uh, saw as really good and desirable. And so what they do, and we do this, you know, it's not just in these kind of people is that we do this with other people we have relationships is, is, is we sometimes compartmentalize, is we love the person, but we don't necessarily love what everything that person does. Um, and, and often then is we want them to change those aspects we don't like and want to keep the aspects we do like. And whether that's reasonable or not, I don't know. As humans, we often do this. But just think of it, too, is the context of parents and children. So parents may discipline children, which children find, feel themselves is harmful. We don't want to be punished. We don't. And by definition, a punishment has to be harmful or else it's really not punishment. But still, children love their parents mostly, even though their parents are punishing them, even potentially with physical punishment because we differentiate the person from what they do that we don't like. And that happens in these, can happen in these relationships as well. Is um, what they often say is, and one reason that a lot of our victims don't want their perpetrators to be arrested or to be criminally prosecuted or even to receive a long sentence if they are found guilty, is they often say, I just want him to change. I want that aspect to change because there are other things that I like and love, or there's other reasons I want to maintain the relationship, for example, because I want the children to have a father that's present or a mother that's present, or there's just, uh, there's other things going on than simply that, you know, those particular incidents that the victims find harmful. So again, just, um, yes, we love people, even though we don't love everything about them. And so people might say, but isn't that different? Well, we all have different conceptualizations of what we're willing to live with in our, with our partners. And we wouldn't all agree with each other, even though we otherwise seem to be rational individuals. There's, given, there's a give and take in relationships. Um, even for me, I think I'm, no, I don't think I'm a perfect person, but hypothetically, um, if we were, is I'm sure that my partner thinks, hates certain things in me um, and would want me to change them, but it doesn't mean that he does not love me and is willing to kind of go along, even though there are certain things. But just to give that as an example of, um, there's not, we don't like everything about each other. And, you know, the degree to which we're willing to take the good things versus the bad things is just is individual. That, that becomes particularly problematic to, um, you, you, you can elaborate further because I'm vague on the details, but the, um, the cycle of the abuse happens and then the, like that honeymoon phase after where the abuser will apologize, I'll never do it again, blah, 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 whatever they need to say. And then there's like that honeymoon period where, you know, things are okay now. And then, you know, it just kind of, so can you describe that? I'm a bit vague. Yeah, on the details. So what you're referring to is the cycle of violence. Um, and the cycle of violence as it's conceptualized is that there's a cycle which tends to start out with tension building. The next then is the explosion. Now, originally the cycle of violence was about the physical, the physical abuse, um, although we can now conceptualize that as about other types of abuse. But then in the uh, cycle of violence, once that abuse occurs, that it's like a, 
you know, explosive incident, there's what's been called a honeymoon period, where in the the conceptualization is that the perpetrator then does things such as I'm says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And basically the honeymoon period is the period the analogy is is that's where things are really good and you get their attention and they're trying to do everything to lure you in. Now that's a common way that it happens, but it doesn't happen for everyone. So we get some victims who say, I never get that honeymoon period, or I did it maybe at the beginning, but no more. So it doesn't apply to everybody, but it's common enough. And it kind of resonates because um, it helps explain to people to under, understand is that honey, they understand the honeymoon period. Oh, well, that's when you're lulled into thinking that this person's going to change. And sometimes they do, by the way. So there are some, there are cases where the abuse was one time only and never happened again. Um, so it's not entirely unreasonable to believe the honeymoon phase, or in some cases it may be there were two abusive incidents and then the honeymoon phase lasted. Um, it's just that, um, you know, commonly, unfortunately, that cycle just continues. Um, and it may sometimes continue faster and faster, and maybe not, because that depends. The maybe not could be because all of all the coercive control has actually uh, worked in terms of getting the victim to do what the perpetrator wants them to do. And therefore, the, the tension building doesn't occur if the victim is entirely compliant. So it could, but it could be a variety of reasons. Um, but what you're conceptualizing is yeah, what's called the cycle of violence um, as a, an attempt to try to explain to people who don't understand. Uh, but another thing I want to add, challenge you on is, so our statistics in, on domestic abuse, and you can find basically, but this is true a lot of statistics, you can find the statistic that meets what your argument, what you want it to meet. So you can find some studies will, that will say, for example, um, that there's an equal amount of male and female violence, for example, or you can find some statistics that say uh, things such as the um, domestic abuse is decreasing or increasing, and you could kind of, you know, pick and choose your study. Um, but in any event, um, the studies that I think are more, more legitimate in terms of methodology and that the study researchers are more independent uh, indicate that domestic abuse, particularly if we conceptualize it as not just physical, but the other types, emotional and, and economic, is that it occurs in people around just about all of us family, friends, acquaintances, work um, buddies. So if you think about it, do you think, have you suspected domestic abuse occurring between people in any of those walks of life, whether um, you know, people you know really well or maybe just incidents you've seen out on the street or in pubs? Yeah, so I got I, I know uh, we, we spoke yesterday and and so this was one of the things that you you mentioned you're gonna ask me and so I was gonna think about it because um, I do have an answer to that. So I think in the first podcast I mentioned a, a couple from high school and and that was um, that was kind of an interesting one. So I'll leave that one. That that's in the first podcast. People can listen to that. But I recently had an experience um, with that. So I, I'll, I'll get into that. So before getting into the details of that, I, I will say um, kind of more broadly. So I, I just returned from the UK um, as we're recording this right now, um, like four or five days ago kind of thing. And I've talked about this quite a bit. I, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but I've, I've talked about it extensively privately and I've had 
some really good discourse with with different people. So I, I my my opinion is um, at least from the people I've talked to, it, it it's uh, seems to ring true. And and one of the things that surprised me about the UK um, is just a and again, this is a very blanket statement. I'm not you know. So keep that in mind. But one of the things that surprised me about the UK was that the the which is different than Canada from from my and this is just my observations. Um, but the general misogynistic views that uh, general misogynistic views that men have of women, and I found that particularly prevalent in people my age, like in classes, like things that you would observe. Um, so it was quite odd where a lot of men, well, men, boys, uh, let's just call it like it is, um, quite critical of women, um, undermining, uh, won't really listen to their opinions, just very dismissive. And that was quite surprising to me. And, and it seems a bit cultural in that sense where you know, it seems to me women are uh, viewed as a bit lesser. Um, and certainly in, in law, um, I, I did notice that. And for me, that's why I have so much respect for British women, um, because they are a tough group. Um, because from what I saw, I mean, they have to be, I mean, pretty much every, every you know, young woman that I met, you know, in classes or wh what have you, you know, confident, strong, intelligent. And I feel like the reason for that is that they have to be that way to get their voice heard because they have to cut through the, the, the misogynistic view. So for them, they have to just be a little more tougher. It's not fair, but also I respect that side because I saw that in numerous occasions where it would just be like this level of, um, strength and confidence that was really striking to me. Um, so good and bad in that sense. Um, but more specific to the, the question that you asked. Um, yeah, so there was, there was an incident, um, I suppose a, a couple different incidents rather. So uh, there's a, there was a couple that I, that I met. Um, I didn't really have a lot of um, interactions with this couple, but multiple. And it, even when it was happening, and I'll get into the specifics, um, even when it was happening, the question that I was asking myself was, when does it become, wh wh where's the line between just being a bad boyfriend, because in this case, they, they weren't married, but just being a bad boyfriend, and then abuse. And so that I was that was on my mind kind of the whole time. And so I don't really have an answer for that right now, but it was just kind of something to think about. And anyway, the the specific example was what I found in, in this particular case was that the the mistreatment, because I, I don't want to say abuse, because I don't know if it was abuse, but we'll just say the mistreatment was under the guise of like oh, we're just joking around kind of thing. So it was sort of this, it was very open and it was in front of people. And it basically was the guy making belittling comments about his girlfriend. And it was like quite, like quite 
aggressive. Like it was just like, like, really? Like, you're going to say that in front of people like and, and so that was what was kind of surprising to me and anyway the the one specific incident there were several of us like kind of all together and the, this guy made this rather disparaging comment um about his girlfriend and she was there so she was right in front of everybody and so he made this really really rude remark and under like this jokey kind of tone, like, oh, haha, you know, I'm just playing around, you know, and it's like, but, and, and so in that case, like, I didn't laugh. Um, everybody else kind of nervously laughed. The guy who said it was genuinely laughing. Um, his girlfriend was rather upset and rightfully so. And she, she was actually kind of giving him crap in front of everybody. So I respected her response in that sense where, she, you know, she stood up for herself um, but when you talk about, yeah, like that idea of just that belittling in front of people, um, the look I gave him was, um, not a good one. We'll put it that way. You know, I, I was, I was pretty bothered by what he said, um, because it was just like, holy crap, like you're going to say that in front of everybody. And then it begs the question, if you're willing to say that in front of people, what are you doing behind closed doors? And, and so that's why for me, I was it was interesting because it was like, where, where is it abuse and when is it abuse? And when is it just saying something stupid? And, and for me, it seemed like in that case, um, reflective of that one particular incident and then a couple other lesser incidents kind of led me to believe like, I think you might be able to classify that as abusive because, um, uh, well, let me ask you then, because what is your definition of abuse? Yeah, <laughs> I think in this specific case, what I observed was it hurt her and you could see that it hurt her. And based on the rather open nature of the comment, it also led me to believe that this probably happens more often than not. So to answer your question, I think there does need to be a, a level of reoccurrence for there to be abuse. It, like you said, it can happen as a one-off. And so like, I don't want to say that doesn't happen, but I think it helps the definition of abuse if there is multiple occurrences, although not exclusive. Um, if it has the intended effect I think it, I think in that case, it was meant to be a hurtful comment and it was sort of excused because who's going to call that guy out in front of everybody? Probably nobody. Um, and in that case, I didn't call him out, but I didn't laugh at the comment that he made. And I did give him a bit of the death stare. Uh, cause I was pretty, I was pretty pissed off at the comment because I could see that it bothered her. Um, you know, and that's how you say, um, you mentioned that earlier, you know, some things that people will accept or people won't accept is different. And I know for me, I'm a, I like to joke and I, I do tease pretty rough. Like I, that's just my sense of humor. I'm, I'm pretty rough, but you're not name calling. You're not like, so that was a bit interesting to me. Um, Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but well, what is you are actually articulating a lot of what Parliament, when they passed the coercive <laughs> control law, were thinking, 
uh, about how to define the harm and was it whether it should raise the level of criminal. So, for example, what you mentioned is it matters whether she felt bad by it. If she didn't, then I think you're right. And yeah, it's not abuse. If if it was water, truly water off her back and she did not care. But what you're saying is she did care. It did affect her. And then you also articulated it matters what he intended. And as you indicated, he clearly was intending to embarrass her and cause her emotional harm. And so with those particular aspects, I'm still confused as to why then you're not saying this is abuse. What is it still missing? And my guess is you're still kind of feeling the physical is not there. And you're still perhaps thinking, because if he had punched her, you would say that was abuse, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're still kind of struggling with this non-physical aspect of it. Um, But I do, I still wonder why you didn't call him out. So if he had, for example, used... um, a racial expletive, and I don't want to, you know, like use the N-word. I think you would have said, don't use that word. You would have articulated something, but there's something here that you didn't. Uh, You still were holding back. And I'm wondering why, because what would you have risked if you had said, stop being an idiot, that's just mean. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because I'm I'm thinking about my reaction. I I think in in that case, yeah, it's an interesting one. So yeah, so so specific to that case, um, so you said two things. So I'll, I'll quickly address the first thing. So the reason I'm hesitant to describe it as abuse is because I don't. In in that case, like that specific incident, yeah, that was that that would fall under that, and I'm just hesitant to call it abuse, uh, an abusive relationship. I think that that's what I should clarify. So that incident. I would certainly clarify as being abusive. Now, the relationship being abusive, I don't know because I didn't see more of it. So I think that's the only thing um, that I would say to that. But certainly the incident, I would classify as being completely inappropriate and definitely being abusive. Um, But the relationship itself, I don't know. Well, I think as a society, we should more consider about, are we simply bystanders or should we become active and protect people from harm? Um, Because you would have jumped in if it was physical, I think. So why not jump in now? And I think partly it's because um, potentially unconsciously you were afraid of, would there be a danger to your social relationship with this person or how you looked? Um, But I kind of would encourage people to start to think about maybe we should speak up and say, for example, because um, wouldn't, wouldn't she have felt better if somebody actually said to him, that was a really dumb and mean thing to say? I think she would have felt so much better. So why not, you know, reach out and, it, but well, also, in, of course, you know, in context here is you didn't articulate anything about you were feeling, fearing for your physical safety if you might have said something, because that would then be different. We have a right to protect our, you know, ourselves from physical harm as well. Uh, but I guess just think about the next time you hear something about that, like that, why not step up and, and express what it is, which is that's mean behavior on behalf of the, uh, of the victim. Um, now, you said you were proud of her for standing up for herself, but just a little care there too is for those women who don't, it's maybe because they have been placed in fear that when they get, if they do, when they get home, they're going to, the they're going to be physically abused and potentially extremely. So it could be the not stepping, standing up for yourself could be because I'm, I, there are consequences to that. 
that that the perpetrator may have made sure that the victim knows that there are going to be consequences if they do stand up in public. But also think about why did he do that, do you think? You just kind of think in those circumstances, what was the benefit to him? Yeah, you know, it's really odd because in, in that situation, I really don't understand why, because it was quite a... Um, so we were in mixed company when this happened, and that's why um, my my opinion on the whole thing was I certainly was not afraid of uh, physical. Um, if anything got physical, that would have been a very quick victory on my part, uh, if I could say that. Um, yeah, because there there would have been um, if I if it if it came down to uh, me and him, uh, he was going to get the worst of it by far. So I was not worried about that. In that situation, I certainly was not worried about a, a, my physical safety. If anything, uh, if I decided to f physically step in, uh, that guy would have got the worst of it by far. Um, but we were in mixed company, and I thought to myself, you can say something now, and I'm a... If I was going to say something, it would have been extremely confrontational, and I just did the math in that um, in that situation. I just felt this doesn't warrant me saying what I'm going to say because if I'm going to say something, it's going to escalate quickly because you know it's that's something that really angers me. And so I just figured right now this is probably not the best um, method to stand up. So my my approach at that moment was. I didn't laugh. The other people were kind of nervously laughing. Like, I don't, I don't think they found it funny because um, it wasn't funny, but you know, they just kind of, Oh, ha ha ha. You know, like the, the, the sideways look kind of thing. So I didn't laugh. I gave him like the stare that, you know, um, not cool. And then to her, I did give her like, I made eye contact with her and I, I did give her like a bit of a, a sympathetic look. To, to just show that, you know, and, and she made eye contact with me. And, and I think it, I, I think she understood that, but like you said, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you know, maybe if I, if I had to do it over again, maybe you say something more overt to step in, but I just figured if I did say anything, it was going to escalate very quickly. And I just didn't think it was, I didn't want to beat him up. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Cause it might've gone that way. <laughs> Well, but uh, think, perhaps it's worth it to think about it for the next time you're in that situation, what do you do? Because what people often don't realize, you, you, we're afraid of interfering where it might end up being unjustified. But at the same time, we don't necessarily realize how much power we have to be able to combat that type of behavior if we simply stepped up and didn't give the person here what he was looking for, which is he apparently thought that would make him seem like a important guy. If we don't, if you stepped in and didn't give him that, maybe he doesn't do it again. Wouldn't that be a better, you know, long-term uh, strategy for that? Um, because yeah, perhaps we can do more as a community to stop that kind of behavior. Because he was certainly was exercising, showing control. Um, but another thing that it's actually interesting, um, and I do not encourage people to go look these out, but there are unfortunately um, YouTube videos and uh, individuals who put on educational programs 
where their strategy is, and this is for males dating females specifically, um, that's their target, is the dating strategy is what is called negging, N-E-G-G-I-N-G. And that's basically the, you get a female to date and have sex by putting down, them down, undermining their self-esteem, making them feel horrible about themselves. So there's the entire strategy built on that kind of thing, which this, this individual was showing that he was embracing basically. Oh, I, I would actually say in this case, I, I am familiar with nagging and, and particularly um, short tangent. I, I did study pickup artistry for a while. Um, probably, this probably about five years ago. Um, it was a huge, uh, there used to be like a VH1 TV show. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the TV show, but the, the guy who hosted it, his name was Mystery. He was a very prominent pickup artist back in the day um, when pickup artistry was like a common, not common, but it was like popular um, in, in social, uh, you know, pop culture. Um, yeah, and that idea of nagging of like putting someone down. And I'm trying to think of like, a, I'm trying to think of like an example where it, it, it's basically like a backhanded compliment. So it, it's something that you say, but it's actually like demeaning. Um, and it's really odd because, I mean, we won't get into it today because, and it actually can and does work, which is odd. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't work. Um, and again, we don't need to kind of go into this today, but for people who want to look into it, because um, I don't condone nagging under any circumstance, but it's also odd from a psychological perspective, like how sometimes that can and does work. And so it, it, it just is a, it's such a complicated kind of thing, but for people who want to check that out, you can find, um, I know the mystery method was a book written by him, by mystery. And also, uh, Neil Strauss wrote, uh, the game back, back around that time. And so it shows the, he was a protege of mystery. And so it shows like the dark side of, of this stuff. And I think it's really important to discuss that. So it's an excellent book for, for people who want to, who want to check that out. Um, sorry, what, what did you ask me before I went on that tangent? <laughs> um, oh, to think about what would you would do the next time. Right, um, yeah. De to, definitely, so kind of to be part of the solution. Yeah, definitely in that case, um, I probably, I, I could have done more. Um, and I did the math and I just figured, I can either like whoop this guy because that that's always my reaction is especially, you know, to, to another guy who, who thinks it's cool to, you know, belittle his, his girlfriend in, in that way. That's just like, um, you know, you're cruising for a bruising kind of thing. And I just figured in, in that moment, I'm like, do I really want to beat this guy up? Not really. Um, so I, I did a more of a subtle uh, thing, but probably wasn't enough. I, I hope it did something. That's interesting that you assumed it would escalate to physical. Um, oh, because I would have escalated it to physical. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, that's things like that get me a little hot under the collar. And so for something like that, um, especially because I, I'm, I'm much bigger than that guy, like I literally had like four inches on him and like 50 pounds, like I, I'm much, much bigger than him. And so for me, uh, the, the physical intimidation side is, is where I would go to. 
Um, maybe it's the MMA training that makes me feel like I'm a tough guy or something. Um, but yeah, that, that's always my, my kind of thing is, is, you know, I don't Well, you also mentioned that you, um, weren't going to do it right there, but my guess is you didn't do it thereafter either, which is to tell them off. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I figured in, in the moment, I think when, when he looked at me, he, he got, he could tell that I was pretty pissed at him and, and that I was giving him the, the, uh, the Ronda Rousey stare down, um, for people who don't know, go, go, go look up Ronda Rousey at, at, at a, at a, at a weigh-in where they do the stare down. Uh, cause she, she actually was always pretty good at that. Um, but yeah, I, he, he knew, he knew that you need to, you need to back off right now kind of thing. And then to be fair, he did, and he actually was was fine for the rest of the time that we were all kind of hanging out. So, you know, again, it, it's one of those things that um, it gets complicated because there was other people there. And if no one else was there, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I would like to think I would have said something. I don't know. But definitely the fact that there were other people there made it complicated for me in the moment because then I was kind of like, you know, do, do I really want to like be confrontational in front of these other people who I don't really know? And so that, that throws a, a bit of an interesting variable into the equation. Yeah. It's in psychology. I believe it's called the bystander effect, which is that people don't intervene. The more people are around that don't intervene as well. Um, versus if you had only been, yes, yourself, you probably would have. And because yes, um, and so. it's a yeah. psychological thing about how we're predicting, well, other people aren't doing anything, therefore I won't. And then even then when somebody's doing a really horrible thing, nobody does. Um, uh, but also, uh, I like the example in part because it highlights something else, which is to the extent that abuse and coercive control occurs in young people, that which might be surprising to a lot. So coercive control can occur even in a couple who don't live together. Um, it actually can occur in teenagers who are dating. It's you, it's just whatever they, and, um, so consider that as well as, is, you know, a teenager that, you know, who's in a dating relationship, are they being coerced, you know, or is it a coercive control relationship? Um, so, so what are some of the signs? Is the person wearing things or not wearing things they otherwise usually would have? It could be the other person is controlling what they wear. Um, are they, uh, being going to parties they otherwise you don't wouldn't expect them to go to maybe they are being coerced to do that or are they um, avoiding parties or events potentially because their boyfriend or girlfriend is coercing now coercive control the other aspect um, that it has mod, uh, changed significantly is the physical control is we usually or physical abuse we usually conceive it as male on female um, but uh, you know said there are studies that indicate that it um, also happens in a variety, same sex and male, uh, female and male. But the coercive control, more particularly, my point here is that uh, where the numbers have varied, there is it's um, women are very likely to engage in coercive control as well, but usually not the physical violence part of it. So even the UK coercive control has picked up a number of female perpetrators. Um, but again, but that particular law, has, the prosecution has to show it has a significant impact on the um, victim's daily life. And that, that can happen. And it can happen even you know, in young people as well. So just kind of 
perhaps people be a little bit aware of is this occurring with people that you're familiar with? Yeah, I, I will say like the, the few experiences that I've witnessed with uh, ab abusive incidents um, never was physical. It was, it was verbal or, you know, kind of like that's some type of like gaslighting method, you know, so it was that would fall under that coercive control side. So it's more subtle, um, sort of, I mean, you know, I, like in the incident that we're referring to, um, that was not subtle at all. That was like overtly right in front of you, you know, so, um, but yeah, definitely, you know, would have been pretty obvious if, you know, the guy threw a punch or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, quite shocking, but, but definitely the, the, in some ways it might even be more humiliating to make a comment, make a belittling comment about the person that you're with in front of other people rather than hitting them. I mean, they're, you know, you know, the, the, that's, that's the difficulty of, of, um, or the complexity of, of these, uh, domestic violence incidents. Yeah, because um, in that scenario, he could, he got away with it versus if he punched her, he probably would not have gotten away with it per se. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, it was that uh, it apparently was felt as very harmful to her. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that was kind of my, my feel of the, the situation as well. So I mean, just to kind of put put this particular um, to conclude this like particular um, anecdote before like moving on to the the last paper that we have, um, I definitely would say like I mean I feel I I did something um, in that case because for the rest of the conversation he was pretty well behaved um, he didn't make another comment um, so I think he he saw the look I was giving him and he you know was kind of, oh good shit okay I'll <laughs> you know I could kind of see that um, on him so at least in the moment it backed him down and, and he was well behaved for the rest of the time that we were together. But I was, you know, I should have done more probably. Um, but yeah, at least it was something, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, at least in that situation, it felt like, okay, you know, you did something to kind of say it. And if he would have done anything else, um, I was itching to, uh, I was itching to, to be confrontational. Um, but luckily he, he didn't. And, and at least, you know, from the look that I kind of gave her, I didn't talk about it with her after because I didn't know her. I didn't feel I knew her well enough to step in and to just be like, hey, like, you know, like, you okay kind of thing because we, we just didn't have very many run-ins. Um, so in that case, it was a little bit more complicated. But I can tell you that if somebody that I knew well, like a friend and somebody that I, I get along with or whatever, um, if she, if that happened to her, uh, then it would have been a very obvious, like, Hey dude, what the hell are you saying right now? Like it would have been a very confrontational thing and it would have been immediate. Um, but I just felt the fact that I didn't know these people very well at all. I felt I just kind of found a happy medium and probably should have done more, but at least you did, at least I did something. And you, you pointed this out earlier, like, don't be a bystander. Um, you know, don't, don't, you know, like I could have laughed with the other people and they were laughing because they understood that it, it wasn't a genuine laugh. It was a nervous laugh. Cause it was like, what the hell are you saying? Kind of thing. Um, but you know, don't go along with it, you know, do something. Um, but yeah, I guess in that 
scenario. I definitely could have done more. Um, well, but notice we're all humans and we kind of think back, should I, should I done that? Or should I done something different? Um, because you weren't, that's why I'm encouraging you to prepare next because you weren't prepared to handle yeah. that. That had not occurred. And as humans, we're still trying to navigate our social environment about what's acceptable or not. So I'm not uh, blaming you or saying anything bad. I'm just encouraging you and listeners to maybe prepare yourself for that occurring because it, that kind of thing will occur. Somebody will be say something mean about their partner for the purpose of hurting them. Um, and so we are we are better respond. That's why first responders are trained so well about how to immediately respond is they're trained, trained, trained. Um, we're not trained as humans to intervene in these kind of acts, but we could try to learn and um, prepare for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that was the thing. It was like it was such a WTF moment because it was like, what are you doing right now? Like it was so out of nowhere. Um you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just an unfortunate. Well, because thing. it sounds like he intended to be shocking as well. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was, it's kind of like, you know, again, it, it, it sort of makes me wonder like why, well, I guess we do know why it's, it, it's meant to be a, a humiliating, however, uh, the level of degree of humiliation that that was the intended effect. Uh, certainly it's just, you know, strange that, um, it also seems strange that you would do that in front of, you know, me who I don't know these people like very well, like, you know, met them a few times kind of thing, like not nothing, you know, so to say that in front of a, a relative stranger also caught me off guard. Cause it was like, what are you like, what are you doing? Like it was, so yeah, it was a very odd, odd situation. Um, but again, that, that's sort of the idea. Like if you're willing to do that in front of a stranger, I mean, what are you doing behind closed doors? I mean, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not optimistic, um, sadly. Um, yeah. So interesting, especially also too, they're very young, like they're, they were early, you know, early twenties. Um, so that is also unfortunate as, uh, you know, I'm 25, and so as a young man, um, even though I consider myself to be a kid still, um, it, it's odd to me that you, another, you know, man would, would find that appropriate uh, to just make that comment. Like, what is, like, why, weren't you raised better? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> when the Italian hands come out, that's when you know. <laughs> I know it's, it's an odd. Well, yeah, that's part of um, the coercive controlling behavior as well as trying to convince the victim you deserve this kind of uh, horrible behavior, or at least, you know, um, you're not worthwhile being respectful to and under, again, undermine confidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a bad situation, but I know it's, you know, you just kind of have to do your part and, and hopefully, you know, we got to intervene in, in whatever way. Um, but at least don't be, you know, that's the thing. If, if you're not sure how to intervene, maybe don't think about how to intervene. Maybe think about it as at least don't be a bystander. You know, maybe that is like a, a helpful tool for people. Like, you know, so on, on the intervention side, you know, maybe don't look at it from, from that side, look at it more from how do I not be a bystander right now? And, and maybe that, would help at least well, for it also me, could be um uh, doing something later on then if yes 
if you're not quite sure what to do and you have a right to protect yourself and not and from harm as well, but maybe follow up when it is a more reasonable or safe time or after you've had a chance to think about it. Because one of the contexts here that makes it different than you know, stranger abuse is that the relationship. So you could still have a positive effect later if the, um, you know, even whether the relationship is continuing or if not, because as I indicated, even when they end the relationship, it mean, doesn't mean the abuse has stopped. So it could simply then be, well, I, let me follow up after okay. I've had a chance to think and in a safer manner to see, you know, try to assist. Yeah. And it's also interesting from, from that side too, like when you, if, and when you do kind of have a, uh, a, a private conversation with, with that individual who was on the, the receiving end of a, a negative comment or what have you, um, just to also be aware, like you're also in a way you, you are injecting yourself into somebody else's relationship. So, you know, don't be surprised if, if it's not as, if it doesn't go as well as you think too, because it might be like, oh, what do you mean? You know, that, that like, are you okay? And like, yeah, what are you talking about? And it's like, you know, maybe that is just the, you know, there is that element going on where maybe they don't even, you know, maybe they realize internally, but to say it externally, like, oh, I'm okay you're almost, they're almost acknowledging, well, they are, they're acknowledging that something negative happened to them and maybe they're not able to do that. Excellent point. Excellent point, which is, um, so sometimes the victims don't, number one, don't want to be identified as victims, both from other people, or they don't want to identify them, you know, self-identify as victims because that makes us have a, feel like we have a different identity. Uh, so it could simply be, um, is, then if they're not willing to talk about it is, well, just know that I'm available if you, when, if you do. That may be the best help as well. But you are absolutely right is it, it not, not to expect that the, this person is gonna be able themselves or want to have that conversation because that could, they could feel more embarrassed as well. Uh, but you could simply say, I'm available to, to chat if you ever feel a need to. Right. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, I know this, the podcast is just flying by. I know these always just, they seem to go by faster and faster, but I guess that's because I enjoy these conversations, albeit on difficult topics, but interesting and, and important nonetheless. Um, so I want to move on to this other article that you wrote, and I'll, I'll read. So this is the, the evidentiary one that I was referring to at the start of the podcast. So I want to read the, the introduction or the, the synopsis. So it, it is pretty league law vocabulary heavy. So just like stick with me and we'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you and we'll, and we'll discuss it and we'll, we'll clarify some of this stuff. So um, I know my lighting is terrible. I can't see the paper very well, but, uh, anyway, so, so this paper is called the reliability of assault victims, immediate accounts, evidence from trauma studies. Um, and by the way, what year was this published? I, I, I think it's quite a recent one. I think it was like the last few years. Cause I, I know the year isn't. No, it's probably year. something like 2014. Okay. Yeah. I think I might've 
removed the uh, like the front page where it's got the like the information, but that's okay. I know it's a relatively recent one. So anyway, let's jump right in here. So the admission of hearsay qualifying as an excited utterance, present sense impression, or statement about mental and bodily conditions is an exception to the general rule of inadmissibility for hearsay statements. Evidence scholars explain these exemptions as being presumably reliable statements as they are generally contemporaneous with an event at issue such that faults with memory and time to lie are remedied. These three exceptions have been particularly depended upon in cases of interpersonal violence in which the victims are considered to honestly complain during the occurrence of the assault and in its immediate aftermath. Nonetheless, much recent research in inter interdisciplinary circles highlights that the impact of trauma has varied consequences upon subjects' abilities to accurately and fully articulate what just transpired. Concurrent, neuro concurrent neurophysiological reactions to traumatic stress can mediate, alter, or entirely thwart one's capacity to conceptualize internally and to clearly verbalize externally the violent attack. Thus, unlike the hearsay exemptions, presumption of accuracy, a surveyor of scientific knowledge now shows that violence, vic violence victims may or may not issue holistic and reliable reports in the near term. On the other hand, empirical studies reject the notion that it takes more than a blink of an eye to fabricate a story. Evidence law is often intransigent in its reliance upon folk psychological assumptions about human behavior. Yet with, with legal scholars and practitioners increasingly embracing the benefits that scientific knowledge can bring to the law, the time may be ripe to consider these three hearsay exemptions. In light of recent studies drawing from neurology, physiology, and psychology principles, and research designs and trauma studies, the goal of evidence law in terms of preventing unreliable testimony can only benefit thereby. So uh, there's a whole lot packed into that. <laughs> um, but just generally, so we're talking about hearsay, which is falls under evidence law, admissibility of, of certain types of evidence. Um, so maybe just describe to us, be, because off the air you described how um, I haven't come across you know, in, in my time researching these topics, I haven't come across a paper like this. So, and, and you described <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's not, that's uh, yeah, that's not surprising. So maybe just describe uh, what the purpose of this paper is and, and maybe just go into uh, maybe clarifying a little bit more for uh, the lay people and, and myself included. <laughs> okay. Um, my framework around this was I wanted to talk about the role of trauma and what uh, to explain certain victim behaviors that seem unreasonable to the rest of us or why the victim doesn't have a holistic linear story about what happened. And I simply because I wanted to place it in a law review, use the excuse of evidence law to do that. <laughs> so I was because but what I'm arguing is that these longstanding, meaning centuries old, evidence rules um, are based on folk psychological principles as uh, was mentioned, but I have no reasonable uh, expectation that I'm going to, with one paper, change evidence laws. So, so that part of it was the excuse of a framework to, to talk about what I wanted to talk about, which because I wanted to um, explain to legal practitioners 
who deal with these cases, why the what I had mentioned was occurring. So um, just, and this is something that I give talks on that takes, you know, a half hour, which we don't have here. But the basic idea is that um, when somebody is traumatized, their stress response is often triggered. And a stress response, when um, trauma is basically stress plus. Uh, so if you're threatened, your body may re release the stress response, which is a multi-systemic bodily response that basically lets us or tries to allow us to survive that threat. But, and so what the stress response is, includes, for example, um, stress hormones, maybe pulsing to your body, for example, to prepare you for flight or fright, fl fight or flight. Um, it's also though changing how your brain is cognitively processing the event. And, and notice that you can't, a person can't voluntarily control that. You can't necessarily control these stress hormones racing through your body. You can't really control what the parts of your brain that are what, some of which are turning on and then turning off others in order then to survive this event. But it can help explain why, for example, the victim may have gaps in their story. And that's partly because think about if you are uh, threatened with your life, your life is threatened, you probably have blinders on when you're focused on that threat. And therefore you may not be paying attention to things happening around you because that's not important. It, what's important is to get over this threat that is um, at, that you are at risk of. And so this, the, the victim story may not have those other facts that aren't relevant to that threat. And it can look to others as, well, you're lying then because your story has gaps when it simply could be the focus on the threat. Um, other examples um, are, for example, why does the victim then not be able to relay something that other people heard? So could you, you might've had witnesses who report things that the victim doesn't report. Again, it could be the stress response is so focused on it that, for example, our hearing may go down because maybe it, hearing is not important to surviving this. Um, it's also, um, it can affect memory. So let me go to that one as well. As basically the stress response is triggering the mammalian part of our brain that, can, that is supposed to process the stress because people are basically familiar with the prefrontal cortex, which is basically, I call it the computer part of our brain. Like a computer, it can't handle stress. A computer can't handle stress. It can't handle emotion. So the, but the mammalian part of our brain does. And so it could be that the victim doesn't do things we think when faced with a, for example, a, uh, their violent partner. Maybe they don't do things the rest of us were, would, but the rest of us aren't having that stress response. The victim is. And so sometimes our victim just cannot um, do what they want to do. So for example, our victim might have wanted to fight back, but felt physically unable because of all these stress hormones are taking over the body. Um, our victim may not have shouted out no, even though the victim may well have wanted to, but have you ever, made, for example, been faced with a scary situation when you couldn't say anything? I mean, I have dreams of this sometimes where I want, you know, of something threatening. It could be something unreasonable, like a dinosaur, who knows, where I was like, and nothing comes out. Well, that can be happening as well. So it's not that the victim didn't say no because the victim was consenting, for example, um, in terms of engaging in consensual sex. It could be the victim just could not articulate anything because they were so in the throes of that 
the trauma response. Uh, it, but it can also affect memory because uh, as I had started and I kind of deviated a little bit, is that the parts of our brain that are trying to focus on this threat means that encoding that memory into the memory part of our brain didn't occur because again, it could be that maybe not be have been so important to survive it. Uh, it can also uh, explain re-traumatization. So our victims may have not only experienced this trauma response in the immediate threats, is when they're reminded of that later, that trauma response can be triggered at a later date, even when they're not faced with the threat there. So it could be why it affects our victims relating the story thereafter is because they may be re-traumatized. And there's a lot more going into that we don't have time for, but uh, basically just want to put into the idea, give you the idea of um, why victims may not do things we expect them to do, why they may do things we, we think is are unreasonable. For example, why did, why did they not flee when they were given the opportunity? Is maybe the stress response that were, wasn't allowing them to flee because they are just so frightened. Um, and it could be, and it can also explain why they're, they don't have the full, they can't capture all of the facts that occurred then is because maybe those facts were not encoded because of that trauma response. Uh, yeah, so um, related to what you were speaking about, uh, I will, uh, under the episode description um, and in the in the uh, notes or whatever, I'll include links to the, well, there were three papers that you sent me. We're only going to cover the two, um, but I'll, I'll post them as well so people can can take a look at them. They're just PDFs, and so I think if people want to look at it, um, because it also gets into, uh, which you alluded to earlier, like the actual neuropsychology of what, what's occurring um, as far as like the hormonal effects and the, the stress response, you go into quite a bit of detail on it. So it's certainly worth reading, um, but we won't, we won't go into it today. But the fact that I think there's this idea that memory is like a picture and on a good day, it definitely isn't, let alone under tremendous stress. And so I think if people can start to understand that, it also paints a more holistic picture of why somebody may, they're not lying, they just don't know. And, and be, be due to the, the stress of the situation. And uh, we mentioned it earlier, but as far as media, I was watching an episode of uh, uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, which is in their 48th season or whatever. Um, but I, I will say they actually do a pretty good job on, on this specific thing where they, they actually do say, you know, like this is quite common and in, in, I mean, okay, they're dealing with victims of, of sexual assault and, and rape. And so it's, it's pretty heavy stuff, um, but it's applicable in, in this situation too, because there's that fight, flight or freeze, which can occur. And so it, it can become difficult for people to understand because it's like, oh, you're lying. And it's like, no, it's, it's just, it's just, unfortunately it wasn't, it's it just isn't in the memory. And what is often the case is that people will fill in the gaps based on what they think happened. So it's just fitting the story, fulfilling the story. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, that, that can occur, the filling in the gaps. And there's two general ways it can occur. One is um, when police, if they're not 
trained on this, this trauma response. The normal police type of questioning is wanting facts and wanting facts in a linear manner. What happened and then what happened and then what happened? And that's, uh, and when you ask a victim who's been traumatized, is that's not the best way to get the story because that's not how the victim is thinking about it or remembering it. And unfortunately that fact-based focus as well is often then it sometimes forces our victims to insert facts in there that they don't know because they're being pressured to do so. Uh, so it could be that they are, you know, uh, consciously embedding those facts because they feel pressured. But the other way that occurs is subconsciously or unconsciously, we all want, uh, it, they can be filling in the facts um, without knowing it. And so how does that happen? It can be, we all want to have these memories, particularly of something that is so important that so salient as a being threatened is our unconscious may fill in those gaps so that we have a story. And so we that, so what you're talking about is it could be my truth. I really believe that fact was correct, whereas the objective evidence may indicate that's not correct at all. And it could, it's, it could be unconscious. It's like consider psychology. So our psychology works with our subconscious and unconscious to do things that we are not aware of to make us... Um, it, you know, it's kind of the, uh, another kind of survival from a psychological standpoint. But think about that, um, at, even outside the context of trauma. Uh, have you ever, for example, uh, been sharing a story with a family member of some past family event where you, there's some detail you all are, that you all remember that conflicts? For example, Gram maybe it's with a sibling or a cousin. Grandmother was there. No, grandmother was not there. Grandmother was dead. <laughs> and But you both think you have these memories where the fact cannot be that simultaneous, but you would both pass polygraphs and you absolutely ha believe you have the strongest memory of the same thing. Um, it's just, and a, I'm just using an example outside stress because it just can happen to our subconscious or unconscious embed those facts that aren't true from a factual perspective, but are true to us. Um, so that's the various ways that, uh, it, so how do we, um, in the first scenario where the first responder is pressuring the victim to include those facts is, well then learn, there are different ways to interview our victims who might have undergone that stress response that gets a better story from that and allows them to not fill in, feel that they have to fill in gaps when there are gaps. Uh, just one, br just briefly, instead of the, uh, this interview style would be instead of trying to say what happened and what happened and make and you know pressuring the victim to have all these faxes, it could be the approach is tell me what happened to allow the victim then to articulate in the way they best can what the you know from their memory and if there's gaps, yeah, try not to pressure. And it could be that thereafter the memory comes back because that's the other thing about this memory is it's, it's not necessarily solidified immediately and is only that memory thereafter. Is there various things that we don't have time to go into, but that one's memory, you, you know, we remember, we recall things about events sometimes we didn't remember it now, but now we remember it later because there's all sorts of brain and psychological things happening as well. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was going to point that out as well that, yeah, these things just sometimes they also just take time. Um, and, and that's just, 
that that's just the the inherent difficulty of of dealing with memory and and you find this often in like just in a general sense in eyewitness testimony i mean there's a million psychological studies and and legal papers on you know i saw the defendant he stabbed him and blah 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 and it was like you literally gave the wrong you described the wrong guy like it, you know, but they believe it to be true. And so you see that and that can be problematic, particularly in a in a court. Yes. And that's a good example. Um, what can happen there is that the per, um, for our witnesses in criminal cases, it could be the witness at some um, hearing saw the defendant and then they embed that memory and then they retroactively remember that. <laughs> same person as committing the crime, but what they're really know, doing is simply, oh, I see him at this hearing, this must be him. And so they also would pass a polygraph, even though they would never have described that person at the time of the crime. It's simply the brain then embedded that fact, that uh, visual into the person's memory of the crime that they witnessed. The last thing I wanna talk about from the paper before we, we conclude, um, too far away to read. Uh, one of the other things that you talk about, um, and you go into, again, you go into quite a bit of detail. And, and so we just don't have the time for that, but the paper will be posted. And so people can check it out. This is uh, uh, page 291. It's coming from uh, peritraumatic disassociation. What is that? <laughs> uh, one of the things that can occur with our victims um, is dissociation. Uh, there's various types of disassociation. Some of our victims may experience all of them, although that's relatively rare, or one or more of them. It can also be a survival strategy. Uh, disassociation can, is basically feeling that you're not part of your body, and there's several manifestations of this. It could be that you're disconnected from your feelings. And uh, imagine that that could be a survival technique. If you're being physically attacked, for example, Separating yourself out from fully feeling that could be the way that you survive. And I mean, feeling both, it could be emotional and or physical feeling of that. Um, it's when the senses are otherwise reduced as well, could be dissociating. It could be explain why our victim doesn't associate, doesn't seem emotional. We would think somebody who is, for example, physically attacked would be very emotional about that. And instead, our victim can be talking about just uh, disemotion without any emotion. And it could simply be they disassociated. They took themselves out of feeling those emotions at the particular time. Um, in some other cases, um, it doesn't happen very often, but some of our victims will say, I felt like I was myself looking down on it from the ceiling. Well, that's disassociation. That's really feeling that I'm taking myself out of my body to somewhere else. And it can be a survival strategy physically as well as psychologically is to remove that oneself from that as well. Um, so it doesn't, the, that reporting doesn't mean the traumatic event didn't occur or the person was not abused. It could be a psychological ploy. Now this is one though that the person, some people can, uh, this happens unconsciously, but some people can consciously trigger this, particularly those who've been repeatedly victimized you can kind of force yourself if, you know, if you kind of train yourself to take yourself out of your body and mind and emotions when you have to. Um, and you know, you know, some of us have done that, for example, if we've been 
uh, like physically punished often as children, no matter even if we deserved it, um, is when we see that punishment coming again, we might kind of then say, I'm going to disconnect myself from that a little bit so that I, I don't feel it as strongly. So that can happen with our victims, again, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, unfortunately, for some of the victims, that may be more or less of a permanent state. But again, that um, even if it becomes somewhat permanent, doesn't necessarily mean it will never go away. Um, but the but if you didn't feel the emotion at the time of the event, you're probably not going to be able to report it uh, connected to the emotion thereafter. Um, but it, again, survival. Bit of a tangent again. We'll we'll wrap it up and then we'll we'll do our conclusion. But I, I recently watched the movie uh, Split. Is that really popular? It came out a little while ago. Is that M Night Shyamalan movie? Pretty good movie. Um, but the the general premise is centered around the idea of or the the psychological disorder of um, dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called split personality, um, and the the person i was watching it with we we literally had like a 30 minute like discussion on like this whole kind of thing and one of the things that i pointed out with with dissociative identity disorder um is that well in that case it, it's almost i think it's like 90 it's over 90 percent of the time it's the result of traumatic childhood sexual abuse and mm -hmm. like that's it's quite it's terrible um, but this, this idea of like th this actual, this psychological process of formulating a personality and, and an identity to shield the, the primary personality from that horrible thing. It, it's just a total defense mechanism. And it's so powerful that, and you, the people can look this up. This is actually true. There's instances where one personality will have an allergy that the other personality won't have their handwriting will be different. So it's like these actual like biological changes can occur. Um, so I know this is a bit unrelated to what we're speaking about, but just the general idea of, the, of this dissociation, it can be extremely um, significant in a number of ways. Yes. And um so I'm going to provide an analogy, although not a, it does not rise the level of disassociation, but per, um, hopefully one that is, the reason I'm using it as an example is it may speak to more people, is we have, in our lives, we often have different roles that we play. And we can be very different personalities when we take on our different roles. Um, think of it, you know, kind of putting your hat on of a role is when you go to your job, you may have a so very different personality than when you are at home. Uh, particularly if you have a profession or some reason that you need to act in a way that's consistent with being successful in that versus at home or if you're doing sports or with your friends, you, your personality and your actions can be very different as you put on those roles. Uh, as an example, as an educator, I put on a hat where I can talk to you um, and engage where in once I take that hat off, um, I'm a loner. <laughs> I don't socially engage and will be quiet the vast majority of the day. Um, or, you know, even more salient back when I was a police officer, I, that actually was a huge hat I put on and totally transformed the person I was and person I had to be to be a police officer and to go out there and put my life at risk 
and to tell people what to do and to you, um, and then once that hat was off, although when you're a police officer, that doesn't come off very much. But, um, you know, when I was no longer in that profession, I went to law school, I was an entirely different person. You would not recognize, have recognized those people. Even the look on my face would be different between those two. Um, my socialization, um, the way I talk, for example, when I'm talking to you, I have a really strong, loud voice. In my personal life, people will say, what, what? Because I don't, I don't speak up. So, uh, again, that, that doesn't qualify as associate, just kind of an analogy to people then. We can do that as humans. We can be different people at different times. Um, uh, I'm not sure I could manufacture an allergy versus not, but uh, that's because that goes in a stronger connection or stronger direction. Um, yeah, that, I, I like that because that 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 is the case. You, you you put on a hat. Yeah, I like that. That's a good expression because it's very applicable in, in in this situation. So I I mean I think that's a, a good place to to stop for today. Um, the first podcast I know we we got into like a variety of different things and and I think we just went into a little more detail um, in this one on on certain domestic violence topics. Um, yeah, so that that's season one, episode nine for for people to check out. Uh, but to conclude today's podcast, um, I know we we kind of talked about it throughout the podcast. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe just summarizing um, from a practical perspective, what can somebody who's experiencing domestic violence do, and what can somebody on the outside looking in do? <laughs> do we have uh, five hours. <laughs> so if you are um, experienced abuse i uh, know there are plenty of resources out there for you people who who want to help you um, and have a better understanding that of what you are going through and um, will be much more sympathetic and empathetic than probably many of your family members and friends because they've been trained and they have the knowledge um, that we've been developing in the last few years. Um, that uh, things are not as simple as many people expect of you, we understand and will help you. And um, yeah, and then and, um, for people who, what was the other one? For people who work with them or just others, like a by, like a bystander outside. I know we talked about it a yeah. lot with with the the anecdote, but I think we need to work on more. Um, yeah, practicing what to do if you observe what might be a uh, coercive behavior. Um, so I don't mean you know jump in there because again you have a right to and should protect your own safety. And maybe you're reading the clues differently. But we ought to have, a, as a community, do better at helping each other respond and helping each other navigate these. And, and also think about it in terms of, to the extent that the perpetrators, particularly of coercive control, think they're getting away with it or think that their reputation will be better because they're the controlling person is, maybe we can, we can um, indicate to them those, you're not going to be validated for that. <laughs> That, um, that as a society, we don't condone that. We don't think you're a better person. In fact, we think you're a weaker person for doing those kind of things. That we should be sending different messages that undermine um, the values that uh, the perpetrators are trying to attain in those scenarios. 
So it's kind of rethinking what we as a community ought to be rewarding and what we ought to be basically punishing from an informal perspective. Yeah, and I think as, as a kind of relating back to the, the anecdote that we, we discussed earlier, um, you know, it, it, that, that's also someone, I mean, I have two brothers, so I, I don't have that sister. Um, so it, it kind of, I think there's a bit of a difference there, but certainly, you know, that's someone's daughter, you know, that can be someone's mother, sister, you know, like that's someone that, so, you know, maybe it helps also to, to maybe from the, from the empathy side, you know, just to kind of look at it a little bit in a more of a, um, kind of get that connection in a way, because it's like, how would you feel if you just saw that as being your sister and someone treats her that way or, or your mother, you know, like, you know, that might help in, in sort of maybe bridging that gap and, and kind of closing the distance and, and therefore being someone that can, you can communicate with and, and to help and, and support in that way. So, you know, if that helps, you know, hopefully it does, but yeah, so. Yeah, just one uh, comment on that. Um, I mostly talk about uh, domestic abuse in the male and female context in heterosexual relationships. That does not mean that it doesn't occur in others. In fact, it does. It, uh, it can be female on male, it can occur in the same sex. The reason I talk about it in the gender perspective is I claim to be an expert on that aspect, on that direction, male on female and heterosexual. I don't claim to be an expert on the other varieties. I suspect that there, um, while there's a lot of commonalities, there may be something else going on there. And so I just, the reason I do it that way is I don't want to claim an expertise I don't have. Um, it's, and, but it's also true, we just don't, simply don't have the basis of knowledge on those other permutations either. Um, and that's partly because that um, those, those victims are less, even less likely to come forward because they're already you know, marginalized or shamed for other reasons. Um, but just wanted to be clear is I, I am not here saying that it only, only males are perpetrators and only females are victims. That's not the case. Right. I think that's a good place. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. It was great speaking with you. I know we've been speaking a few times uh, throughout the week, so it's great to catch up and, and always excellent to have you on here. And, and uh, I'll, I'll throw up the, the, the links to the papers. So if people are interested, they can check, uh, check them out in a little more depth. And yeah, I mean, I would just say also, um, I think it's one of these things that, you can't really ever talk about it enough. I think it's important to discuss these types of things and to keep it at the forefront. And age isn't a factor either. It can happen in, you know, you know really young, you know, kids, you know, essentially, you know, like young teenagers and all the way through through adulthood and, and further on. So um, it's always something to be mindful of and to be, be aware of and, and be on the lookout for. So that's it. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Congratulations um, starting your third season. <laughs>